Hello, St. Andrews. Let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Humble our hearts now. Quiet our hearts from distractions. Help us to hear your word, to receive it as it truly is, the word of our God and King. Humble us that we might hear it and obey it for our good and for your glory. Amen. Well, please grab your Bibles. If you don't have them with you, uh, reach out for them now. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're in as we continue our journey through Ephesians. It's well worth also, if you've got a pen or something, putting um, uh, a marker in uh, Genesis chapter 2 will be there as well. I've been married for nearly 20 years, and so I plan to speak about marriage uh, with great authority. Uh, no, not the authority of my own experience and definitely not the authority of a model for how to be married. No, neither of those things. The authority by which I speak is the word of our God in the scriptures. So I'm completely sure that I, what I will say will be what we need to hear to live out his calling for us, the calling that he has given us, uh, those within our church family who are married. I, I really just want to say four things about marriage today. They come from this passage in Ephesians. Marriage is from God. Marriage is for God. So often in our world and in our own experience, marriage is broken, but marriage can be redeemed. They're the four things. Let's start with uh, the first of those. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see this. Marriage is from God. He made it. The very earliest pages of the Bible reveal God as creator. And the climax of his creation is his uh, creation of man and woman uh, to be together. Uh, they're not meant to be alone. They're meant for companionship and friendship. That's who we are as humans made in his image. Uh, you see that in chapter 2. We see uh, that God made the man and the woman for that relationship. Uh, the man and the woman made of the same substance, of the same image. And then this brilliant verse, uh, verse 22 of uh, Genesis 2, uh, the moment of the first marriage. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Do you see it there? He brought her to the man. Uh, God is the, the first father to give away the bride. <laughs> Uh, he has that privilege of uh, walking his daughter down the aisle, Eve, to meet Adam. And uh, in Genesis 2, verse 23, you see the moment that Adam meets Eve, the groom and the bride meet. And well, he breaks into song. Verse 23, uh, it's a, um, a song or a poem. Uh, it can be summed up in one word, really. Wow. <laughs> and in the very next verse, we have the wedding ceremony itself. Verse 24, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The picture of this God created gift of marriage is of two people totally committed to each other, uh, bound by promise keeping love one to the other. And the very next verse, uh, 2 verse 25 says, because of this, they have no shame between them. They, they hold fast together. And the reason they can do that is that they trust the promise keeping love that each has made one to the other. So significant, so wonderful is this gift of marriage that Jesus says in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I mean, that's, that's the moment uh, when I have the privilege of leading uh, wedding services that everyone falls silent, everyone's still at that moment. What God has joined together, let no one separate. And we're still and silent at that moment because we realise, no, this is big. This is wonderful and it's not to be tampered with. Marriage is a wonderful gift from God. 
Here's the second thing I want us to see. Uh, marriage is for God. He made it for his glory. In Ephesians chapter 5, our passage that we're focusing on today, the Apostle Paul, speaking of marriage, actually quotes uh, that early passage in Genesis 2. And then he says this, speaking of marriage, he says it's a profound mystery. It's wonderful. But then surprisingly, he says this, uh, it's a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. You see, marriage, human marriage, is a relationship patterned after the relationship that Jesus was to have with his church. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus knew what it would cost him to marry his love, the church. He knew it would cost his own life, his blood shed so that he could win back his bride. It was a relationship, again, based on the promise of love, but, but a love that was promised by sheer grace, not by works. I want to say, as we look at what Ephesians says about marriage, if you are married, your marriage is not ultimately about you. Your marriage is actually a sign that God is using to point to something even more wonderful, far more wonderful. Uh, saying that a relationship, uh, this is what marriage does, this is a sign, it says that a relationship uh, that's based on grace, not works, is actually possible. It's a sign that says a relationship based on faithful promise of love received and given is actually possible. And not just possible, it's a sign that says it, it is real, it's true, it can be had. And that is the relationship that God offers us through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're married, your marriage in the present is a sign of that present offer of relationship with Jesus. And if you're married, it's actually a sign of the hope we have as Christians and as the church of the day when the groom, Jesus, will come back for his bride and take us to be with him. Marriage is from God. Marriage is for God. It's for his glory. It points to his big purpose in Jesus. But then there's this, and we know this in our own experience and we see it in our world. Marriage is broken. Uh, often this sign that's meant to point to the preciousness of that relationship with Jesus is, is marred in different ways. And it's a brokenness that's actually as old as that first marriage. Uh, you read on in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, and uh, we're, we're told there, we watch as the man and the woman eat from the one tree that God commands them not to eat. God, who has shown he is committed to their good, says, don't eat from that tree. You'll surely die if you do. And yet they, they choose to ignore him, to mistrust him. And what's interesting is the first effect of this mistrust of God, the breakdown of that relationship, is that it actually affects their relationship, and they begin to mistrust each other. If Adam has chosen to live independent of God's love, to mistrust God's love, he may well do the same to Eve, because ultimately he is self-focused, self-protective. And the same is true in reverse for Eve. And so they cope, we're told in Genesis 3, by making clothes for themselves. They're, they're trying to hide what they have done, their mistrust. They're trying to cover it over. So much so that if you read in Genesis 3 verse 8, we're, we're told they even try to hide from God. Human marriage is broken. It is broken from what God had created it to be. It's been broken from the very first marriage and it's still our experience today. You see it in, uh, in the 21st century in so many different ways, don't you? Uh, the way our culture rejects or reduces the significance of marriage or even redefines marriage. 
And I want to say, particularly here in the month of May 2020, a month that if you've been watching in the media has, has been given over to uh, be a month for domestic violence awareness. Surely the fact that we have to have a month like this shows how broken marriage can be. And I want to say with that in mind as Christians, we should feel the tragedy of that brokenness, especially in regards to domestic violence of all sorts of different forms. We should feel it acutely as Christians, especially uh, due to the fact that uh, I wonder if you've noticed this, that recently there's been a number of significant uh, media contributions that have argued that one of the key causes of domestic violence in our culture is the Bible's teaching on marriage. And especially this passage that we have in front of us, uh, Ephesians 5. Uh, In the last year or so, there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald that was Uh, titled after the words that we see in Ephesians 5. It was this, Submit to your husbands, women told to endure domestic violence in the name of God. And I think it means, with articles like that in play and a real challenge to the passage we have in front of us, we need to approach it with real caution, don't we? Given the claim that a passage like this and God's word to us here might actually lead to the problem, not the cure. (laughs) to the brokenness. I think we need to take care to see the tragic damage that even Christians have done in marriage, either by disobeying the scriptures or tragically by thinking they were obeying it. We must repent of those moments. We must repent of the brokenness that we have made of marriage. Uh, We are, as we've seen in Ephesians in chapter four, we are to walk in the light, not in the darkness. We are to put off those things. And so the question comes to us uh, with the challenge that uh, has been had, especially in the context of this month of May, this awareness month. uh, How do we redeem marriage from the brokenness, especially if there's a danger that passages like this and teaching from God uh, like this might actually cause damage? Uh, I mean, should we, uh, and this has been the suggestion by some, should we abandon passages like this or ignore them or underplay them? Now, I want to suggest that if we do that, we have a threefold problem. Firstly, the problem is this. It's a theological problem. The reality is that what we have in front of you, and I hope you have it open in front of you there in Ephesians 5, is God's word to us, the living God. He speaks as our loving creator. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. And he calls on us as he speaks to trust and obey him because his word leads to life. So to ignore this word is to ignore that he is speaking with authority to us. The second problem is this, it's it's actually an evidential problem, the claims of articles uh, such as the one I uh, quoted before. While the claim is uh, made that this teaching leads to domestic abuse of different forms, and while I have, in complete honesty, witnessed those who would describe themselves as strong Christians guilty of such things, the reality is the overwhelming evidence says that it doesn't cause this in fact it pushes in the other direction and in fact the cause of such violence is multifactorial and right at the heart of it is our sin the evidence points in the opposite direction not in the way that that article i quoted before suggested let me read you a a quote from a, a researcher into this this whole issue steve tracy who was actually quoted in those articles this is this is his conclusion from his research he says there is an inverse relationship between, the ch- between church attendance and domestic violence. 
Conservative Protestant men who attend church regularly are found to be the least likely group to engage in domestic violence. The evidence actually points in a different direction. It is important to say, and this was cited in some of the articles recently, if someone is fringe to church life, uh, sporadic in attendance, and therefore probably sporadic when it comes to listening to God, they are actually more likely then to be perpetrators of such abuse. So we have an evidential problem. And thirdly, I think we have an epistemological problem, a knowledge problem. I think if we are to read Ephesians 5 clearly, we see that it pushes not towards damage in marriage, but it actually pushes towards redeeming marriages as God intended them to be. Ephesians 5 calls for marriage marked by the loving union of two equals, distinct equals, unified together by the promise of love, founded on the faithfulness of that love. Uh, You see it there right in the middle of our passage, verse 25, you see it? Husbands, love your wives. That's at the heart of Christian marriage, just as Christ loved the church. It's a call not to functional obligation or duty. It's it's deeper than that. It's heart, soul, mind, love for the other. (laughs) And Ephesians 5 says that, 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 that part of the way God has intended for this loving union of equals to flourish is through a pattern of leadership and submitting to that leadership. And that's, I think, where we see that this passage simply does not compute with 21st century logic. Uh, the words that this passage uses, words like headship, words like submission, uh, are completely discordant with our culture. In fact, some would regard them as evil. Not so, says God. Now, let's have a look. Uh, firstly, the command there in verse 22, wives submit. Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Let's look at it carefully. The call, if you look here, the call to submission is not made to them by their husband. The husband has nothing to do with this call. It's made by the Lord. It's a call made directly from God to the wife. Submission is is not actually ever something done to a wife by her husband, never. It's something she is called to do freely out of obedience to the Lord. Uh, The word submit actually means this, appoint yourself under. It's a decision to appoint yourself in that uh, role of uh, submitting to his leadership. And so I want to say, as we look at this together, to married men who are listening, God says it is not your role to ask your wife to submit. That's his role, not yours. If you find yourself doing that in your marriage, you are missing the point of this passage entirely. Your job actually is to look after your responsibility, not hers. Your job is to love and serve and sacrifice and cherish and nourish her, to love as Christ loves, to love even when you do not feel loved back. That's your job. But why would God give this command to wives? Well, have a look at verse 23 and you see the reason there. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. It's clear from uh, the verse and and actually the one surrounding that this idea of head or headship uh, uh, is about authority or being the leader in the relationship. Uh, We understand that as a culture, that that word headship uh, makes sense to us. You can have the head of a company or the head of a political party, head of lots of things. Uh, We we know what the term means. It means the one who's meant to take the lead. But, and this is crucial, 
Christian headship is entirely different to worldly headship. The husband's headship is not to be patterned after some boss of a big company or political party or whatever. It's actually patterned after the leadership of Jesus. One of my favourite passages in Scripture is Luke 22, as Jesus is teaching his disciples about this leadership. Uh, they're competing for who's the most important. And, and he says to them, you know what, the, the leaders of this world, they, they like to clamber over each other to, to, to rule and to put others down. Not so with you, he says. And then he cites his own leadership. He says, you know, do you know how I lead? This is how I lead. Yeah. Brilliant quote. He says, I'm among you as one who serves. The husband is the servant. If you're wondering what your job description today and for the rest of your married life, Christian husbands, is you are among that relationship as the servant. You are called to lead your wife through service. And what is being asked of your wife here is that she trusts that service. What does trusting submission look like? Well, have a look at the nature of the submission. Verse 24. Now, as, to the, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, firstly, let's see what it doesn't look like, this submission. It doesn't look like two unequals. We've seen that in Genesis. We see it again here. Both the husband and wife are image bearers of God. They're, they're both co-heirs in the church. Everything that Christ has done is, is theirs equally. And they're gifted by God's grace together. They're, they're, they're equals in the church that, that Christ is the head of. So it's not two unequals. And here's the second thing it's not. Submission is not about slavish obedience, blind obedience, passive obedience. The phrase in everything here does not refer to unthinking obedience. The husband models his headship on Christ, yes, and the wife models hers on the church. She follows Christ's pattern in that relationship. She is to submit, in other words, in her marriage to everything that is in keeping with Christ's character about her husband. Because beyond her husband, she actually submits to one far higher, the Lord. Uh, it means this, Christian wives, you do not need to submit to a husband who is leading you to deny Jesus and your faith in him. You do not need to submit to a husband who is leading you to, into a pattern of sinful behaviour. That is not what is being called here. You have one who will call you away from that, the Lord Jesus. It does mean this, and this is really important, I think, in terms of a healthy marriage. It will mean that part of submitting is encouraging your husband to grow in that godly leadership. And part of that will be gentle challenge, gentle rebuke, uh, him repenting, you forgiving, leading him on to encourage him to lead you on. <laughs> uh, Luke 17 paints a picture of that where Christian brothers and sisters are called to if needed, if a brother or sister is continuing in sin, to rebuke them, that they may repent and be forgiven. And I think a healthy married relationship, a Christian relationship, is one where there's a constant process of that challenge and change, all within a context of grace and forgiveness. Now here's the final thing this submission does not mean, and this is really crucial in this month of May as we do think about the huge damage that has been done uh, by perpetrators of domestic violence. And I'm mindful that as I preach and as you listen, there will be some who are in a situation like this. I do want to say to you, if you are in danger in your marriage, whether physical danger or other danger, it might be that the best way you might be able to help and love an abusive husband is to provide real consequences for his behaviour. It may mean you need to separate from him. 
it will definitely mean you need to talk to someone about this and not be on your own in it. It will mean you may need to seek help. It could even mean going to the authorities. All of those things are within what is called for here in Ephesians 5. I want to encourage you, if you're in any situation like that and you're worried, please reach out. We promise to hear you and we promise to help. In the end, when a husband is giving Christ-like leadership, the wife should be no more crushed by that leadership than she is by Christ's headship over her. She should thrive because of it. And so I want to say to wives, it is worth thinking through, given that this is a free choice, that the Lord is calling you to appoint yourself under your husband, uh, what's that going to look like to express that freedom in your relationship? Rather than looking for ways to avoid it or perhaps minimise it, seeing it as your free choice, an opportunity to honour God, what's that going to look like? And I think part of what it's going to look like is actually having proper conversations together as a couple. What's it going to look like in our marriage? What's it mean for the way we make decisions? Uh, how about the responsibilities we each have and how we raise children, if you have children, or your use of money or your physical relationship, or your spare time. So many things to, to think through together. Now, what would make it easier for a wife to submit? Well, the obvious answer, and we'll come to this in a minute, is a more godly husband. Uh, but beyond that, uh, consider the resources that God gives you to help with this. This is about being, having a spiritual marriage, so you need spiritual resources. And right at the end of Ephesians, we're going to see in chapter 6 that he offers us brilliant spiritual resources for the, the struggle we have with these things. And at the heart of them is his gift of his word, and prayer. In other words, your relationship with the Lord Jesus and with your heavenly Father is your strongest resource to be able to submit to your husband. So take opportunity, take, make the most of it, encourage each other. Now let's turn for a few minutes to think about husbands and the call on them, which is massive in this passage. From verse 25 onwards, it's a call to love, sacrificially love. Three aspects of the love. The first is sacrificial. Do you see it there, verse 25? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The call for a husband uh, in marriage is a call to give yourself up for her, to lay down your life for her. Now, apart from the, the bold declaration that some uh, romantic husband may make of, I'd, I'd, I'd die for you, well, that's brilliant. But what's it going to mean, this command, in the 99.9% .9 of occasions where your physical death is not what your wife needs? Well, in the same way that a wife makes a daily choice to think about how to express her freedom to submit to her husband, the call on husbands here is to daily choose to sacrifice for your wife. What's it going to mean today in the context of the day, in the details of the diary of the day and the things before you? How can you do it? Think about it. Here's the second command. Uh, it's a sanctifying love, not just sacrificial. Verse 26, uh, this is the goal. Remember the picture of Christ in the church and now modelled in our marriages to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water, with water through the word, uh, to present her to God as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. There's your goal, husbands. And I feel this weight acutely. I think I spend more time washing our church family with the word than I do my own wife. But that's the call to me here. 
the picture is of, of a marriage where a wife over a lifetime is growing more and more like Christ. And key in that progress is her husband's love. A love that's no doubt, yes, sprinkled with flowers and chocolates and hugs and romantic gestures, but a love that longs for her best. And do you know what her best is? Her best is that she can stand before God holy and pure and blameless. Husbands, do we see that our primary way of expressing our love for our wife is washing her with the word, bringing her under the sound of God's word? Do we see that? Every Christian husband should ask, and I've been asking myself this week, is my wife more like Christ because she's married to me or in spite of me? Now we're called to sanctifying love. And finally, and this is quite surprising, we're called to self-love. Verse 28 to 30 basically says, if you want to love yourself, you need to love your wife. The Bible says the golden rule of marriage is to love yourself. And you know, to be honest, our world doesn't have any trouble with that. But here's what's remarkable. Here's how strong the union of husband and wife is. You now cannot love yourself without loving her and thinking about her. Am I prepared to love my wife physically the way I love myself? What's that going to mean for her health, her tiredness, her insecurities? Uh, am I aware of those things as I am of my own needs? Am I prepared to love my wife emotionally? Do, do I actually work hard at understanding her like I want to be understood? How does she see that expressed? How about this one? Am I interested in her world as much as I want her to be interested in my world? Do I know what her week looks like, what her world involves? Do, do our children, if you have children, know that her world is as big as yours? Now, I need to stop. I've gone massively over time. We're, we're, we're trying to keep sermons on the live stream to 20 minutes. I'm at 25 already. Uh, we've only just scratched the surface, haven't we? And so I do encourage you to keep thinking, keep talking. Uh, couples, use the next few weeks to think about these things together. Read these passages, talk it through together. Small groups, we're going to dig deep into this in the next week or so. Uh, help each other, pray for each other. And let me say, you may have questions from what we've thought about together from Ephesians 5. I, I hope you do have questions. And after Night Church's live stream tonight, we're going to have a Q&A session. I'd love you to be part of that if you do have questions. And if you've got a question, all you need to do is... Uh, Send it in to live at sanandes.org.au and we'll aim to have a look at those questions tonight. So please do that if you have questions. But for now, uh, I'm going to finish where I started. If you are married, see the purpose of your marriage. It's not ultimately about you. It's not even ultimately about you together or your family. Your marriage is, an, is a sign <laughs> pointing to something far more significant far more wonderful and eternal. The relationship is meant to point to the relationship Jesus has with the church. Your marriage is meant to grow more and more into a sign that declares to the world that a relationship based on grace not works is possible. It's a sign that's meant to declare to the world that a relationship based on faithful, promise-keeping love given and received is actually possible. And more than possible, it points to where we're certain and sure of it in our relationship with the Lord Jesus, where God has delivered that relationship for us and where we long for it to be fulfilled when we will be with him forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you love us enough to speak into the heart and the details of our lives. We pray that we would be humble enough to hear your word in Ephesians. 
and obey it. Amen.